it was often Christians who were those who were starting the organizations that were caring for the poor, that were seeking to care better for the land, seeking to care better for the creatures. It was often actually Christian leaders because of their faith that stepped up and did that. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on the Christ and Culture podcast, Dr. Keithley will talk with Dr. Jonathan Moo about Christianity and creation care. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment, On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about sports. Last week in college football was Rivalry Week, in which teams played one of their closest rivals. Think Michigan and Ohio State, Alabama and Auburn. Rivalries are one of the hallmarks of sports. You can't think of the Yankees without thinking about their arch-rival Red Sox, or you can't think of Duke without thinking of UNC. But how should Christians think about rivalries? Here to discuss with us is our own Dr. Benjamin Quinn, and back with us is Dr. Lainey Greer. Lainey was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we're glad to have her back to discuss sports rivalries. Dr. Greer, thank you for being here today. Yeah, glad to be here. Okay, so let's make this practical. As a sports fan, as a Georgia fan, I want Georgia to win. And uh, to be very blunt, to pick two teams out of random, I generally like it when Tennessee and Alabama or such teams <laughs> lose, okay? Is this okay? Is it okay that I have such a desire for my team to win and the other team to have soul-crushing defeats? Well, I'll defer, to, I'll defer to Dr. Greer. I feel like she's got more more uh, gas in the tank on this one. Is that because we beat you for the first time? <laughs> oh, here it goes. Here we are, folks. <laughs> just <laughs> fire shots fired. Here we are. <laughs> I mean, just you know, to quote the great Herm Edwards, right? You play to win the game, right? So the reality of competition and being a fan is you want your your team to succeed, right? So as a believer, certainly there are lines that we should draw there. Um, but just inherently, I think, yes, we can we can say we want our team to win. Yeah, so I, I don't want to jump too far off into the deep end here, Nathaniel, but I, I do want to be very serious and straightforward here. I think competition, and this is true, we can make this, 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 this case economically, we can make this case athletically, we can make this case in many ways. But competition in its best sense is, first of all, it's a creational good. It is part of what emerges out of the way in which God has designed the world. But here's the problem. This is the rub. And even why some people will furrow their brows in hearing me say that is because we have turned competition to nothing but adversarial, whereas competition should never for the Christian competition should never eclipse our call to love neighbor competition at its best. It makes us better. It's it's maybe the best illustration of iron sharpens iron. That's exactly what's taking place. And sports competitions are uh, even even Coach Saban. I'm an Alabama fan. I love I appreciate Coach Saban in many ways. He's not a perfect man. But one of my favorite things that he said that I've used multiple times, even in devotions for football teams and so on, he'll be the first to tell you sports is a metaphor for life. And we can't forget that, that sports is a, uh, a theater or a stage, as it were, 
that just gives us an illustration for how we strive for the good, how we set goals and go after them, how we play and take a position on a team. We don't try to take center stage. Uh, We just play your role on the team. Football is a brilliant illustration of that. If you don't have good linemen, there's no such thing as a Hall of Famer, all-star quarterback or receiver or running back. And yet linemen are the last people to get attention. Um, This is life lessons for us, right? At some point, every one of us have to learn how to be a lineman to just do your job and grind it out, whether you get attention for it or not. So when it comes to these kind of rivalries and competitions, um, I do think that Tennessee should be wiped off the face of the earth, but not because I really hate them. I'm I'm totally joking. Um, In all seriousness, I think it actually, the the kind of competition when it's kept in check with neighbor love, whether we're fans in the stands or whether we're participants, it actually sharpens us to be better men and women. So here's the question. When can rivalries cross into unhealthy territory? Quinn, you've kind of laid out the ideal scenario, the ideal thinking about how competition is good for us. But we all know, and we've seen the games, many of you uh, maybe played in the games when rivalries got into some unhealthy territory, at least in how we think about other people. Where are those lines? First of all, the our love for a sports team should never so dominate us emotionally that it affects our relationships. That's that, I think that has to be principle number one. I will get excited in a, a, an Alabama game or a, a St. Louis Cardinals game where I, my wife and I love to watch the Golden State Warriors. We get excited about those things. But neither one of us are yelling at each other. We're not screaming at the television. We're not throwing things at our kids. We're not cussing out people who cheer for the other. We're not doing that. And, and also, I'm not going to miss church for this. It's not going to affect affect my relationship with people who, who cheer for the other team that sit across the aisle for me at church. I mean, those that's where you've crossed the line. Here's another place, though, and this is where it's it's easy to give illustrations for how sports or competition, when you're participating, it's easy to illustrate, okay, how that makes, how that prepares me to be a better husband or man or wife or woman or whatever the case is. But what are we being prepared for? How does, how does being a good fan and the kind of fun rivalries that come with that, how does that actually help us to become better men and women? And here's, here's one thing that I've tried to learn is even when I have strong opinions about, you know, who should be in the final four or who should have won that game or who might be the the Heisman Trophy winner or whatever, it actually reminds me to listen to the other side of the argument, try to understand it, restate that argument, and then try to sit in those shoes and see if, if I were sitting in their shoes, would I see it that way or do I still really disagree and even keep my emotions in check in the process? Now, we're still talking about a game, but now let's map that onto real life. People who disagree with me about Jesus, people who disagree with me about other theological issues, people who disagree on political or public policy or moral matters. I still I'm actually it's actually these kind of rivalries when kept in check. It's good practice to listen to the other side, to try to understand their argument, embody that argument as best you can, and then to sit back, keep your emotions in check and try to promote the truth. And I think it's actually good practice for us. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would add one more to another area. I think we could kind of cross the line as believers is just our identity. So I grew up 15 minutes away from the University of Tennessee. I, you know, have orange blood, all these things. Um, But my identity first is in Christ. It's not as a Tennessee volunteer. You know, I I went there for school and all these things. Um, But when, when my identity as a volunteer fan is leading me to do things, having unwholesome words that are coming out of my mouth or whatever, that's counteracting my identity first, that's in Christ. Um, That's what I think for believers, we, uh, you know, may need to keep ourselves in check a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That's very helpful. Thinking about kind of the idea that Dr. Quinn mentioned about being a fan, because more of us are fans than are actually there playing the games, especially as we watch on television. 
Lane, just directing this question to you as a, as a Tennessee fan, you know, this season has been filled with some tremendous highs for Tennessee fans and some devastating lows. Speak to us about how we as believers, when all of our teams have those situations, how we can not be too high or too low in these situations and not let our sports team dominate our emotions in that way. Yeah, wow. So thanks for scheduling this after the South Carolina loss uh, (laughs) that came out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, Now, I mean, I think just on a super practical level, I, you know, have have worked in ministry in Knoxville for years and um, church attendance was always in the fall. It was always determined, unfortunately, by how Tennessee played the night before. So, you know, I just knew going into church the following day, if Tennessee had lost, our attendance was going to be down. We didn't need to print off as many bulletins or whatever it was. Um, So, you know, I think checking our hearts on on that level and if if you know we are so devastated by the game from the day before that that's affecting um you know being in community or whatever at church the next day that's when um i think believers need to maybe ask themselves some hard questions um and i i get it you know again lifelong tennessee fan we've had far more losses than wins in the last 15 20 years but yeah that's the first thing that comes to my mind Dr. Quinn, Dr. Greer, thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Greer, how can people follow you in your work? Yeah, so uh, my website, laneygreer.com, just doing several things there. I've started a podcast that kind of plays off the blog I've had for several years. So you can find that all on my website as well. That's very helpful. Uh, so Laney has a new podcast. We'll check that out, laneygreer.com. Thank you for joining us today. Why should Christians care about the environment? To help us think through this question, we have with us Dr. Jonathan Moo. Dr. Moo is the Lindemann Chair and Professor of New Testament and Environmental Studies at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. Dr. Moo, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Ken. Well, let's start off... uh, with just the question about your title. Now, you're, you're a research professor. That's, where, that's the part of the chair. But uh, you are professor of New Testament and environmental studies. Now, I know a number of New Testament professors, and some of them are professors of New Testament and Greek, New Testament and textual criticism. I can think of one who is a professor of New Testament and Second Temple Judaism. But I think you're the first that I've met that is a professor of New Testament and environmental studies. And I just bet there's a story behind <laughs> uh, that, that job or that title. So tell us about that. What does that mean? Sure, yeah. And it could be a long story, so I guess I'll have to try to keep it somewhat short. In a way, I've invented that title for myself. And I have the gift of teaching at a place, Whitworth University, that allows me to kind of spend time in both of these fields, in the, in the field of environmental science and ecology, as well as in the field of biblical studies and early Christianity, which is really where my PhD is and where I was trained. The reason for that is because I have a great passion for both of those things and a background in both of them. I grew up um, and studied wildlife biology, um, well, biology and English as an undergrad. Did a year of seminary when I was mm-hmm. in Trinity at, in Chicago. Just absolutely loved that year of studying scripture and theology, but was convinced that my goal was to move west, live in the mountains, chase around large wildlife, and become a wildlife biologist. So I went to Utah State um, and did some work there and in Montana to do a master's in wildlife biology and 
I had a tremendous time, um, but also went through a crisis in my faith for reasons perhaps I can come on to later on, which led me to start reading theology again and had all these questions I wanted to pursue about the connection between my Christian faith, the stuff I was learning as a scientist, um, and I think a bit of a yearning to see the church take more seriously the things that science reveals to us about the world, and especially to help me think as a Christian about what it means that the systems I'm studying as a biologist were all under such profound threat, and the human civilizations and cultures that depended upon them also then beginning to suffer the effects of environmental degradation, climate change, and all of the rest. And so some of that, those that existential questions I had led me to really want to return to study scripture and theology. And so that led me to Gordon-Conwell, where I did Old Testament and New Testament uh, master's degrees. And it was just a, a rich time to have a tremendous amount of work, as you know, seminary <laughs> times could be, and was working during that. But just that time immersed in scripture and God's word and beginning to find ways to articulate a biblical theology of creation and what that meant for some of the questions I had had. And then it was later on, I went to University of Cambridge and I did a degree in New Testament and in early Judaism. And while I was there, this Institute for Science and Religion, I warn you, this is going to be a long story, Ken, sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, You're fine. You're this fine. Institute for Science and Religion. Now, was, is that the Faraday It's Institute? the Faraday Institute. Yes. Yeah. So yes. it was part of the University of Cambridge and they wanted someone to work on the intersection of Christianity and ecology. And I was still in the middle of my PhD. My wife had heard about it. She worked at a city center church in Cambridge. And in my usual faithful way, I told her, I said, there's no way I could get that job. I said, for one thing, they won't want an evangelical. Um, for one, and they won't want someone who's still working in their PhD. And she, said, she kind of said, no, you have to go for it and talk to them. And it turned out that I and another colleague ended up both being hired by the Faraday Institute to start on this project looking at Christianity, especially scripture and ecology. And so I had this chance as a part of that institute for then several years to work on this project and to interact with scientists from around the world who were, many of them who were deeply Christian and were thinking about how they related their science and their faith together. So it was just this incredible time and opportunity to get to bring together my passions and my loves in a way I hadn't been able to before. And then when I came to Whitworth University, they were really keen to start an environmental studies program. Um, and as a Christian university, their hope, of course, was that their Christian commitments would be at the center of that program. And so it was just ideal and that I get to teach these classes that bridge that gap that sometimes is a divide between science and faith and especially between scripture and environmental science and environmental studies. When Christians think about a theology of creation and the integration of faith and science as it relates to the doctrine of creation, uh, most conservative evangelicals find themselves gravitating over to apologetic questions about the age of the earth and those kinds of things. But what I hear you saying is is that really, if we're going to apply a Christian way of, of thinking about creation to the created world, what we're really going to end up with are ethical approaches, such as creation care. So what is creation care, and how, what do you understand it to be? Sure, yeah, and it's a helpful point to make, actually, at the start, because I think one of the reasons that perhaps we Christians have neglected our responsibilities to care well for the earth, to care well for God's creation, is that these debates, which are important in their own right and necessary to have, but have distracted us from what all of Scripture is actually trying to tell us about who God is, about who we are, and the nature of the world that God made. 
And so it leads us to spend all this time squabbling, and again, without diminishing the importance of those debates, I know you've been, been a helpful contributor to many of those discussions. Um, it's distracted us from really our central calling to work and to keep the ground, to rule over God's creatures and God's creation, to bear God's image as God calls us to in this time and place. You're right in that, one, I'm not really surprised that there have been such sometimes strident debates on creation and evolution, age of the earth, uh, all of those things. What has surprised me a bit is uh, how partisan discussions about creation care has become. I mean, you, you might we might have disagreements about how the house was built, but I think we'd all agree <laughs> that the house should be cared for properly. So I find it surprising uh, how partisan the conversations about uh, cre- uh, creation care have become. Why is that? What's what what's <laughs> happened? Well, if I was a more of a sociologist or historian, maybe I could trace it more usefully for you. You probably have ideas about that yourself. I, you know, in part, I think it simply reflects the polarization of American culture and politics that we Christians have not been immune to. And so, you know, I think for lots of reasons, many of them good and understandable reasons, uh, Christians became wedded to certain political ideologies decades ago. And when that politics also became associated with the interest of lobbyists from big business and kind of energy companies wanting to do things the way we are doing them rather than thinking creatively about how we might produce energy differently. I think the rhetoric of that political discourse kind of filtered into Christian worldviews and led people to really mistrust the science around climate change, for example, and even just more broadly, the science around um, studying the nature of our biosphere and and our earth. And so led Christians to see all of that as part of perhaps sort of a liberal plot to bring in anti-Christian perspectives into the world. And so let let alone just reject it without even considering the science in of itself or or, or asking what I would have hoped we might ask, which is what, what might a distinctive Christian approach to these things look like rather than just try to shove it aside and not pay attention to it and just following whatever political leader that we're interested yeah, in. I, I think you're probably right about that in that in the minds of many, whenever Earth Day and things came mm-hmm. about, it was seen as something more on the progressive side yes. of the political agenda. And so there is this deep suspicion that calls for taking climate change seriously are actually calls for more governmental intervention. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at the other side. When, I'm trying to remember, I guess it would be a a, a number of years back, uh, there were a number of authors on the side of the left that blamed Christianity for the present ecological crisis, our present ecological problems. blaming the Christian perspective from the creation mandate in Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, that somehow the, the world was ours to consume and then dispose. How do you answer those on the left that say our present predicament, it's Christian's fault? It is the fault of Christians. Well, and, you know, some of this goes back to what is a ridiculously short little essay written by Lynn White. Um, That's who I was thinking. Okay, you're probably thinking of that. Yeah, Yeah. just several pages. And those of us who work in this area have to sort of cite it all the time because it was so influential based on no research, just kind of hypothesizing essentially as he looked around as a historian and thought, well, maybe this Christian notion of dominion has led to this view of dominating the earth and abusing it. And that's the problem is that Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion the world has ever seen um, and that we need to reclaim a different sort of, and he actually advocated for a different sort of Christian articulation Mm -hmm. of how we might relate to the earth based on St. Francis. But that 
that thesis of Lynn, of Lynn White's has been so compelling to people on the left and to people who work in ecology or work in the environmental movement, um, partly, be, sadly, because they look around and they see ample evidence for that in our own time. That I was, just as, a, as an aside, one of these often sobers me. I was in Cambridge at a conference on environment or climate change more generally. And a couple of us had a chance to articulate a Christian approach to these issues. And this guy got up, a Cambridge academic, and he just said, this all sounds great, but I don't buy a word of it. He said, I do all of this work in the States. And he says, the biggest obstacle to actually adopting renewable energy are Christians. Mm-hmm. And so part of me has to actually acknowledge the fact that sometimes we we have kind of lived into the stereotype that Lynn White um, suggested. But his thesis has no grounding historically, in my view. You can look across human civilizations, um, different religions, different countries, and you see that we, as fallen human creatures, um, because of our broken relationship with God, often and frequently fall into a broken relationship with our environment, um, with the earth upon which we depend. So you can trace that in all sorts of different cultures. And so Christianity, Judeo-Christian cultures, Abrahamic faith cultures don't have a corner on degrading our home and often living badly in it. There's also, of course, all sorts of contrary examples of the ways in which Christians, even during the time of the Industrial Revolution, when the challenges facing the thriving of other life and of the poor were being faced most acutely for the first time and on such a large scale. It was often Christians who were those who were starting the organizations that were caring for the poor, that were seeking to care better for the land, seeking to care better for the creatures. It was often actually Christian leaders because of their faith that stepped up and did that. Um, And of course, as someone who looks to scripture as my primary authority for my Christian faith, we also have to go back in times like this and ask, well, what does scripture say about who we are, the nature of creation, and who God calls us to be. And so that's that's where I would want to take Lynn White. Yeah, and that's that's an excellent answer because uh, you know, you and I read those who seem to almost have an anti-human uh yes. a perspective uh who look upon uh, we, you and I discussed one author who who said humans are parasites. <laughs> and so I, I expect that those on the on the right uh are that are pushing back on the left are thinking of authors like that. However, as you just have stated so very well, the Bible does present us as having a mandate, a responsibility. So what would be some good ways for a Christian to think about these things and say, okay, I see uh, that the Bible presents the principles of, of ethical stewardship, of accountability, of responsibility, what does that look like? Does that mean I, I stop using plastic bottles? You know, but what would be some general practices that you would advocate? Say, here are some things that, that perhaps we should be thinking about. You know, I, one of the first things that I would hope we would do was to see Scripture's description of God's care for creation for us as an invitation to once again enter into God's world and see it as the arena of God's glory, to become more attentive of the places where we find ourselves as a source of joy and delight and of resilience and of decentering ourselves. You know, we live in a time in particular where our technology enables us to spend much of our life feeling like we are at the center individually mm-hmm. and as human creatures. And we forget sometimes our humility before God. And I find that often in creation, we can be reminded of that. So seeing, first of all, the way in which creation is woven into the biblical story from Genesis all the way to the Revelation 
is really an invitation to step again into the world wherever we are, even if we're in an urban setting, and to just be attentive that we depend upon the life of this earth. One of the books that I worked on, I came up with this acronym, which is a little silly, but to kind of outline different ways we might respond to this mandate if we're convinced of it. And it's awake to suggest we live lives that are fully awake. And the first A in that was for attentiveness, just being attentive to our place and to creation, again, as a source of, of delight. But also, in that attentiveness, also not ignoring the profound challenges that face life on Earth. Um, you know, we're quite good, a lot of us, at following sports teams, mm -hmm. um, following the news, the latest political machinations, whatever it might be. But until very recently, and really it's still the case, you're hard-pressed to actually find stories covering the very foundation of our life on Earth, which is the flourishing of ecosystems, the biosphere, climate, and all of that. Um, it tends to be buried to the back page. So I think we actually owe it to, to God's call upon us and to our sisters and brothers around the world who face the challenges of um, the Earth's environmental problems much more immediately and existentially than we do, to pay more attention to those things and to ask, in what ways can I be involved in that? It can be overwhelming just as learning about the plight of the poor globally, to see that our neighbors are not just even the people next door, but are across the globe, can be a great burden on us sometimes. But when we, we at least have to confront that burden, first of all, and then ask, how, who does God call me to be in this time and place to respond to that? You bring up a good point. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an American who lives in a first world environment. And so lack and shortage means to me not being able to find the particular coffee creamer <laughs> that I want at sure. a grocery store. And so I have to admit, I'm not quite sure I'm a good judge of, 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 of the situation simply because, let's face it, uh, most of us as living in the suburbs are in an urban area, we're pretty removed from what's happening in, in many ways uh, in, in the, the broader environment. So there is a debate about what is the best practices to help those who are truly living at the margins. You bring up the point that it is the, the poor and those who live in the, the, the most destitute regions of the world are the ones that really do face the adverse effects of climate change the most. Now, let me go ahead and put on my hat uh, for the other side. Sure. I can just hear them what they're saying right now. They'd say yes. But, what you're, uh, but by moving them away from uh, fossil fuels and the, the economically accessible uh, nature of, of fossil fuels, in other words, gas and oil is cheap, renewables mm -hmm. not so much. And if we're really truly going to help them, uh, the people that are at the margins, then we may have to hold our nose and use petroleum products in a way that you might find uncomfortable. How would you how would you respond to that? To, sure. Because yeah, I've yeah, I, no, I've heard that a, I've heard that that argument made more than once. No, it's a good question, and you know, in part of it, behind that question uh, lies a really important focus on justice and equity that we have benefited from the burning of fossil fuels in America more than any other country in the world. Um, and it's a gift. I mean, the energy that's available through burning coal and fossil fuels. There's a reason why is, we use gasoline. Of course. It, yeah. it's, it's, it's so a, easy to transport. And it's, it's extraordinarily it, efficient. It has so much bang for the buck. And so we need to, I think, just acknowledge the goodness of that. You know, that yeah. even the technology that enables us to study climate change and the Earth mm -hmm. systems is fueled by an in industrial civilization that has been fueled by fossil fuels largely. The question, though, is then what we do when we recognize, and this is the key, is to recognize the profoundly adverse effects that 
that is now beginning to have on the Earth's climate and the ability of all of human civilization to thrive into the future. Um, and if we are actually honest about the scale of the impact that that's having, it means that our response to that sort of a question has to be one of, first of all, acknowledging that the sacrifice should start with us, those who have benefited from it the most, and who actually are the most privileged, it's easiest for us to sacrifice because like you say, our sacrifices are often very modest compared to the very day-to-day -day just existential need to, to survive and thrive that many people face. And then to think creatively, and of course it depends on at what level you're working, if you're working as a government or just working with missions agencies as we often do, to ask, well, how do we help people who, who, who have not had that development that we have had to take an alternative route, to yeah. take other trajectories. Um, and just as has happened with much other technology, for example, cell phones in Africa, for example, to kind of leapfrog the West trajectory of development and to begin um, with renewable energy. And, you know, we talk about the cost of renewable energy. And this is more of an economic question, which is right. beyond my expertise but, to an extent. But I should just say we've, you know, we have subsidized fossil fuels with billions and billions of dollars over the decades. And the I have a political scientist friend who pointed out to me just the other week what a tiny amount we have subsidized renewables. So we sometimes criticize them as requiring subsidies not being economically viable yet. But we've poured all of our efforts into pumping up fossil fuels for a long time. And we simply, if we recognize the scale of these challenges, now need to shift our efforts um, towards developing renewables, helping people build resilient, thriving lives in their communities, um, not just in relationship to climate change, but in relationship to the land and the, that they're a part of as well. Um, and really, and to learn from them. Um, you know, sometimes these cultures that we go into as missionaries to help also have much to teach us about how they have historically lived on the land and relationship with the land in ways that were sustainable over many centuries or millennia. Um, and so recognizing not just us bringing in knowledge too, but listening to them. Um, and one, I'll just say one final thing, if I can. I was talking to, it may have been Catherine Hayhoe and someone else on a, a conversation some time ago, about how I, one of the ways I have hoped perhaps we American Christians could become more aware of these things is simply to listen to our sisters and brothers in the majority world. You know, we all have connections through our missions agencies and, and other groups and churches with Christians around the world. We are most poised to actually address some of the fundamental challenges facing us globally because of our relationships across the world. Um, but sometimes what's happened, I learned in this conversation, is people in those contexts are actually nervous to be honest with us. They know that some of their American churches and American aid organizations and missions organizations don't want to hear about climate change. They don't want to hear about those things that are going on in the ground. And so they kind of soft pedal it or back up, back away from it. Uh, but, you know, they're often begging and, and really longing to see us come alongside them and help them be more resilient as well as addressing the, the themes that are causing climate change or causing the breakdown of their ability to farm consistently from year to year, all of that. To piggyback on what you just said, and I just recently talked to a, a number of missionaries who are working in places, for example, like Haiti, and mm -hmm. I'm thinking of them particularly, here you have a humanitarian thing, disaster may not be too strong a word there, um, and an economic tragedy uh, in a country like Haiti, but it is very much an environmental disaster there too when one looks at how uh, the land has been denuded uh, mm -hmm. of trees, yes. uh, the waters around it has been uh, destroyed, um, and the, it, because of the various practices that have going on there. And any kind of solution that is going to be found to help 
a, a situation like what's going on there cannot be merely uh, economic. It cannot be, you know, there, there, it, it's going to take a sustained all-around um, uh, effort, and, and that, in, that very much involves uh, how, do, how do we renew the environmental uh, situation, the, the ecological situation that they have in a place like that. How can they ever thrive with their landscape so so destroyed? Uh, it, it's heartbreaking in a place yes. like that. And that, that yes. goes to your point in that it's going to take uh, both. Dr. Moo, you've challenged us to think about how we as uh, first world Christians uh, with such abundance, we, we need to think about how uh, our actions are impacting people who are at the margins. Uh, what you're calling for is a type of discipleship. This season, we're focusing on spiritual formation. So how does this conversation connect to spiritual formation? How would you connect creation care with growing in grace? Yeah, it's part of being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ shows us what it is to bear the image of God. And for Christ, that means going to death on the cross on behalf of those he loves and an entire groaning creation. Um, so if we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, to live out the image of God in our time and place, it's going to include care for the earth as a part of our discipleship. Um, and as I suggested earlier too, one of the spiritual disciplines that I think is perhaps most necessary in our time is Sabbath breaks from our technology time spent in God's creation and in God's word, where we set aside those things that so distract us from ourselves and from God's call upon our life and look again at this world that testifies to God's grace and glory. So I think it's a part of our, our overall spiritual development there as well, um, recapturing that vision of the world as God's creation. Before you go, and, and you don't like to talk about your books, I know that, but what are they and how can your our readers... Uh, find them? Um, well, the, probably the two books most relevant for this conversation um, is one I wrote with a colleague at the University of Cambridge who's a geophysicist um, called Robert White. And we wrote a book about Christian hope um, called Let Creation Rejoice. It's with InterVarsity Press in the States. And that book was written in response to two things. One was um, the sense that occasionally we Christians have not taken seriously our responsibility to care well for creation because of our eschatology, because of our understanding of the nature of God's coming new creation, God's kingdom. And so I wanted to think about biblically, go through a number of texts, what scripture says about the new creation and the relevance that has for how we live now in this creation. And so it was written with that audience in mind, but then also on the other side, some of my colleagues who work in these issues already and who face the risk of despair and climate anxiety and all of these things that uh, some of which perhaps seem silly almost to those on the outside who don't pay attention to these things. But for people on the ground who are seeing day by day the diminishment of life, people's livelihoods ruined, um, they face this deep despair. Um, you know, I think sometimes about Aldo Leopold, who is a great conservation conservationist in the United States, talked about one of the dangers of an ecological education being to live alone in a world of wounds because you're, you're attentive to your patient and the things that are happening, but no one else often is aware of that mm -hmm. until it's, it's too late. And so I wanted to, to also suggest that one of the distinctive things that Christianity um, looks like when it cares for the earth is this hope, 
um, and a hope that also can give us joy, even in the midst of lament, even in the midst of a suffering world and a groaning earth, um, that we're called to worship God through this work and to trust God finally for the results. Um, so the book was written to try to... And the title is again? Um, Let Creation Rejoice. So, and then my father and I had dreamed for years of writing a book together since I was a wildlife biologist. And so we did this book with Zondervan called Creation Care, a biblical theology of care for the earth. We have been talking to Jonathan Moo, and uh, thank you, Dr. Moo, for joining with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the listener favorite part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. And I cannot wait to hear from Dr. Anna Daub. What kind of sci-fi book are you reading right now? Is it sci-fi? I'm sorry to disappoint you. No, I'm, I'm actually really glad am. to be disappointed. Okay. So, tell me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just got a book and have been reading it over the last couple of days called World Christianity and the Unfinished Task, a very short introduction by F. Lionel Young III. And this was recommended to me in a conversation I was having with a professor out in uh, Edinburgh. And I was like, well, I need to get my hands on this. I love world Christianity. And it's been a really good introduction to the topic. Uh, I think sometimes we don't recognize what is world Christianity? What does that even mean? How did it how did it come about? And that's what I think he does a really good job of kind of introducing you to the topic, at least so far. I'm only about halfway through the book. Mm. Um, but I, I, I think the, the bibliography itself is worth the price of admission, just to be able to see he really walks through who are the big writers who brought along, who, who brought about this recognition of global Christianity, world Christianity, mm. and uh, why are they important? And I, I think the bibliography is worth the price of admission. Tell us the name of the book again. World Christianity and the Unfinished Task, a very short introduction by F. Lionel Young III. This is a good tie-in, Anna, with uh, you work here at Southeastern. You teach, but you also work with our what we call GTI for short, the Global Theological Initiative. Can you give us just a short introduction to what GTI is? Sure. So Global Theological Initiatives, I often say, is the best-kept secret at Southeastern. Uh, we partner with schools around the world to help them think through theological education in their context that is biblically faithful, uh, culturally appropriate and missionally oriented. Mm. And we do that through these strategic partnerships where sometimes we'll help them create something new in their uh, context. And other times we work with an already existing entity to help them, uh, but by doing some kind of consultation or by uh, helping people get credentials. So we'll actually take leadership groups through a, an intentional leadership cohort while they get education. Um, and they're able to, to, to hopefully be better teachers um, and we, we just really want to partner with the global church. We really believe that the Great Commission will not be fulfilled by Western Christians alone, mm. but it will be fulfilled by the global church partnering together for the sake of the gospel. Mm. And uh, that's what Global Theological Initiatives hopes to do is empower um, and walk alongside and equip those people who are already um, in other places. They're in leadership positions already. How do we help them be able to mobilize their own people for the sake of the gospel? Is there a website or a place that our listeners can go to to learn more? Yeah, we actually have um, information on the Southeastern Seminary website. Great. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.